We began this podcast season in late winter and the early half of the long spring semester. Our local fields were beginning to stir as the days lengthened. We end our podcast season during summer session classes and a time when the fields are bursting, nearing the height of produce. The local tomatoes are starting to come in, a highly anticipated moment. Tomatoes, especially many heirloom varieties, are something our local climate produces wonderfully. And it's finally time for dishes that really show off in-season, ripe, fresh tomatoes, cold soups, salads and sandwiches, and vivid platters of multi-hued slabs and slices sprinkled with salt and olive oil, or doused with hot brown butter, a truly decadent balance of acid and sweetness and rich nutty smoothness. We teach in seasons and we eat in seasons. It's been great to connect the two for you this podcast season as we think about our work lives as part of a local food producing ecosystem in addition to our community college system. I'm always wishing you good teaching and good eating. I'm Claire Houle, a writer and instructional designer at the Center for Teaching Excellence at Midlands Technical College here in Columbia, South Carolina. This season, I'm following the roots and filaments of teaching practice at the college around the set of skills and experience of learning to learn. What skills do you teach? How do you teach them? How could we connect our teaching for our students and each other? This is Instructional Ecology. Friends, we're at the end of our season of exploring the constellation and centers of light and gravity that we call learning to learn. Where are we? First, I'm struck with how many of these episodes talked among each other. In other words, agency is a topic we return to many times, even if in subtle ways. Frustration and failure also kept returning in many places. The self-awareness gained by reflection was almost everywhere. In a learning process, there's endless return and iteration. Those of us who are specialists experience this as well. We learn what we already know better and more fully over the years as we study and practice and fail and become frustrated and find new directions. How precious to enjoy surprise even after years of immersion. We spiral closer and closer in on our subjects. Often we find that mastery is simply a better communion with what we seek to know and do. There's always something more to uncover and practice and learn. As long as we study and practice, we never arrive at a final destination. Rather, we simply add more layers of understanding, another coil in the cycle of exploration and discovery and return. Speaking of return, I feel like new kinds of conversation on our subjects are just beginning. All of our episode topics this season deserve a return many times over. For example, failure as a subject is only just beginning to be talked about in new ways here at the college after our failure episode and our bonus failure story episode this season. By bringing these topics forward, shining light on them, we change them, change our perceptions and our experience, the way that we handle it and talk about it, and that changes lives. That brings me to my framework for this last episode as we close out our season, much of which is from quantum mechanics. 
Forgive me and stay with me. When I note that instructional ecology's work of observing and asking and beginning to answer changes what's being looked at, we have a kind of informal observer effect, as it's known in quantum physics. When we observe a phenomenon, we change it. Simply by measuring a particle or by asking questions and creating answers, the subjects are changed. And of course, the observer is changed by the knowledge they uncover. As I roughed out this season when I was planning, I jotted down a note about where I wondered we would end up. In my very first outline, which had a lot of open places in it, I labeled the last episode Entangled Learning. It's the nature of production, and indeed most storytelling, that you strike out with many unknowns and that you have to be prepared for organic growth and surprises and dead ends. I hoped that we might achieve a richer and more connected sense of how learning at the college isn't just happening in discrete classes and disciplines. We may teach alone with students, but they have the chance to interconnect everything, as do we. I wondered if, by observing and setting alongside each other so many different courses and disciplines, we might come to see the web of a college education more entire, to see the learning skills populate across subjects and appreciate that they aren't confined to any one discipline. I feel like we have. By allowing people to talk about their specific work, their subjects, we also see how they're teaching more than healthcare or mechatronics or theater. They're teaching essential skills that make learning possible and better. In the first episode, we set out to make this work visible. I feel like we have, and that's worth continuing to do. And it seems to me that we could replicate the season with different professors from different neighborhoods in the college in each episode, and we would always find overlap and chiming ideas and practice, even as we find fascinating difference necessary to particular practice. And our understanding of the college and of learning and our community would only grow richer. I feel like the season looked at topics the way we look at shells while walking on a beach. In a huge swath of landscape, we draw up a single topic and study it, appreciating it. And then once we know it, we decide whether to put it into our pocket and keep it, or to let it fall back into the landscape, perhaps a bit changed in our hands. We take up these aspects of learning all the time as professors. We handle them, study them, change them as they change us. Then we let them fall back into our minds, where we generate our teaching plans and ideas. We talk with others, chipping and polishing and shaping those ideas. We'll take them up and set them down a thousand times in a career, and always there is something we can find afresh, even as we wear these ideas smooth and useful with handling. So how can this podcast season continue to be of use to you beyond that generative turning over of ideas? Well, as is my responsibility as your CTE faculty support, I've created something for you, something I'm pretty good at, questions. What if, as we planned courses and designed individual classes and activities, we asked at each move, which of these skills of learning to learn do I want to teach as I teach my subject and how? When do I need to teach study skills and which skills would help students most in my classes? 
When should I invite students to play in their learning to get a big leap forward? When should I allow myself that possibility of play in my teaching? Where are the many places I can confer and nurture agency? How can I help students build a lifetime practice of reflection and self-awareness that will help them right away to change and improve in practice and assessments? When are my students frustrated in my classes? And how can I turn that to good account, bring that into their understanding of learning? How am I handling failure? And when could I speak about failure that's most helpful? Could I tell a story of failure that could make a difference for my students? And how can I continually offer connection to my students as a classroom community and as a member of our college? More on those questions and their use at the end of our episode. I've made something for you that you can use that's on our webpage for this episode. But I've gotten this far and haven't begun to fully engage with the title for the season finale, if you will. While I was recording interviews for the season, I got glimpses of another quantum state, the one that I chose for the title of this last episode, entanglement. The word entangled is typically to do with a kind of inescapable connection. Sometimes it can have negative connotations like being entangled in vines or fishing wire, unable to break free. But what if we saw it as the organic interconnection that's necessary to successfully teach at a single institution that might honor the transformative nature of education and learning by allowing us to transform our teaching and our learning community? Entanglement is an expression of connection, but one that is far more profound. Let's get into today's guests who will begin to crack open the door to this possibility for the college and our teaching. As I talk to professors and staff around the college, I find that many of them can be described as mission-driven. They're here to educate, to serve the community with their expertise. They derive deep satisfaction when their students succeed, and they're ready to innovate and change in order to best serve those who come to us. My first guest today, and one who is here to talk about interconnection, is one we already know, Christine Witkowski, a sociology professor in the School of Social and Behavioral Sciences and podcast guest in season one. Christine has been part of the impetus behind this season in her capacity as the chair of the Strategic Planning Committee for Excellent Instruction. I joined the committee last summer, and she and I have talked through many avenues that led us to this season, these ideas, and these guests. Christine is two years into a three-year stint directing a committee that is investigating how best to strengthen teaching at the college. Flowing from our last episode on connection, let's spend a short time with Christine and ask her about connection and begin to think about interdependence in a teaching and learning community. Christine, you and I have now talked many times since our interview in 2022 about your perspective at the college and how valuable you find interconnection in your profession. Your strategic planning committee has even enshrined this goal, the state of being in the team priority actions, haven't you? We as a team really believe that fostering a team attitude across the college is critical to the building of excellent instruction at the college. You know, 
ever since I started at the college, I've had this kind of team approach. I went around the college and learned from as many people what they do as I could because I knew that there were a lot of people doing stuff that could help my students. And I think that our students deserve to have this kind of support team and a knowledgeable faculty and staff who knows what everybody else is doing so that we know how to make the appropriate referrals. So I see this, this building of a team attitude um, in a multiplicity of ways. Number one, we can support each other better when we have a team. Um, but also we can support our students better when we know who's out there to help them. So for instance, today, you know, I, I talked with a student who's struggling a lot with time management and I made a referral to counseling services. And if the student continues to struggle, I know that I can also refer them to the Life Skills Center because there's personnel there who can help them. So every time we know something about what the rest of the team at the college is doing, the more we can help our students get the resources that they need. You know, it's not just about helping students, but if we feel less isolated ourselves, we're gonna be much stronger and confident in our teaching, I think. Well, I think one thing that um, the, the, the team rolled out immediately um, last fall was MTC Interconnections, which is now six months in. What, um, what uh, tell me a little bit about how Interconnections for you, um, how, how is it going? What's, what's the value of this kind of programming? You know, I have been beyond delighted with the programming that's come out of MTC Interconnections. And my delight is both at a personal level and as the leader of our strategic planning team. So personally, you know, I love being connected with others uh, at the college. And I'm a pretty introverted kind of person, but people at work don't think that. Um, and it's because I'm always reaching out. There's so much that others at the college can offer me in terms of insights and ideas and support and that sort of thing. And through MTC Connections, my my connections to other faculty have become much stronger. I've met people who I didn't know before. I've built stronger relationships with people who I already did. I've had the opportunity to talk about our work here at the college, including both our joys and our challenges. And I've been really inspired by learning about the incredible work that's being done by other faculty and staff here at the college. So on a personal level, it's just been such a great way to, to, um, to build relationships with people. As far as my leadership role for the strategic planning team, it's been so exciting to see our ideas come to fruition. You know, we, we had ideas for the faculty conversation series and for the common read and for the podcast and for the story archive, which will come out eventually. And it's been just amazing to see how the directions that you've led us with, with those different opportunities. I think that our ability to be better instructors and to enhance our culture dedicated to student success really hinges on these collegial interconnections that we're building through MTC interconnections. 
And I think this really um, has this, this programming that has been done can really move us in a direction of empowerment for us as faculty and staff and for our students. Well, this uh, this season of the podcast, Learning to Learn, is is still MTC Interconnections, right? You know, it's 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 designed to think about, okay, we're going to continue to listen to each other and talk to it and see what we're doing and how we're doing it and what 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 could it be like if we were more connected. I'm wondering what you hope that this particular project, talking, deciding to talk about essential skills together, um, what do you hope that in podcast form, you know, like when people hear what people are doing, what what do you what do you hope that this will do? What could this offer us? Gosh, I, I mean, it sounds silly, but I really think that it can help us build that culture of student success that we've been talking about at the college. You know, we've got this strategic planning initiative and we've got the retention consultant working on some strategic priorities or strategic opportunities or whatever they're calling them but it's all geared at building a culture that helps our students to succeed and that's not just succeeding here at the college but succeeding in their lives more broadly and I think that if we can make these essential skills or durable skills or whatever you want to call them more visible and and more purposeful that we're gonna create amazing I mean our students are already amazing but we're gonna empower them to be even more amazing than they already were so I just I think it's a dream come true if we can make this happen dream come true, she says, to further empower our students to reach whatever goals they've set for themselves. And that arises through the empowerment of faculty to look about themselves, feel agency to know each other's work, and share their own, to decide together what would serve our students and each other. So let's push deeper into the topic of knowing and interconnecting with my second guest, We've returned to the neighborhood of English and humanities with an English professor. She and I are willing to spend some time with uncertainty and the messiness of learning as we explore possibilities from her origins at the college to her current incarnation and what she's working on at the moment. She came to us in developmental studies, a series now discontinued by the college, but those practices continue to deeply inform her teaching to the success of her students. My name is Melissa Swick Ellington. I am in the English department in the School of English and Humanities. I began at Midlands Tech as an adjunct reading instructor in the developmental studies department back in 2011, and I came on board full-time in 2016. So I have been so looking forward to this conversation as I've, I've gotten the chance now to talk really deeply and closely with a lot of different faculty members about a lot of these pieces to learning to learn. Um, and we've, you know, discovered and uncovered all of these things, some of which, of course, we always felt that we knew and some others we were like, you know, I simply hadn't thought of it in that way. 
And now I'm really looking forward to, to hearing your perspective. I know that your background is in developmental reading. Yes. And I'm so curious about um, a little bit about your background itself, but then also as the college has moved on from developmental studies, how does that continue to inform your work as it appears now? Well, as you said, I did start at the college as an instructor in the developmental studies department, specifically in reading. Um, my doctorate work was in education, and then I did some postdoc study specifically in language and literacy. So reading was my uh, my focus. And uh, as the college has transitioned and has made some changes. We uh, are now in the English department, which has been wonderful. As a developmental studies instructor, a key tenet for me was always, where is this student right now? And where do they need to go in order to take their next step on the college journey successfully? And as a reading teacher, that could take the form of identifying challenge areas in reading comprehension, or perhaps, you know, practicing strategies for reading a college textbook chapter successfully. And these are valuable to any student in any course. So they really do inform all teaching that I do, um, as well as in the, the English department. And I realized that students often need support and resources beyond just me. That was something that I certainly learned as a developmental studies instructor, which still persists today, of course. And that's where the web of services and professionals at the college becomes so vital and important. What I, I like about what I hear you saying is, I'm alone with the student and I'm looking at them so closely to figure out what they're doing and how I can serve them. But you know, I'm gonna notice a lot of things that aren't my wheelhouse exactly. uh, and, and I don't have to do them. Right. I, it, I don't have to do all of these things. I don't have to be everything to the single student. You can begin to sort of refer out, as you say, into a web, a metaphor we really love on this podcast. Yes. Uh, um, and, and that, of course, makes me think so much of COL, right? Because COL is designed to be a web. It's designed to be to branch out. Right. We we want them to come in, get the set of skills and then just sort of reach out you know, and use them in many places. I know that you have been really deeply immersed in COL with us. Tell me a bit about um, your involvement over the years and how you see that those essential skills as a part of our students' need. Well, I started as a COL 105 teacher uh, with the Developmental Studies Department years and years ago. And then I was part of the um, redevelopment of the course with Alice Davis and a team of professors from across the college in 2020. And since then, I've been working with the School of English and Humanities, as well as the dual enrollment versions of COL 105 as a faculty lead. And I also have the, um, the honor to teach the course to our English and Humanities students. This may sound a bit dramatic, but I see the skills that we teach and develop in COL to be essential, not just in education, for our students, but throughout their lives, their professional and personal experiences. One of the things that I find to be valuable is I try to share pieces of myself with my students and make connections with how the skills that we work with in COL impact my own life even now. One example that I give them is how I have worked to develop growth mindset 
in learning how to tap dance. Um, this is something that my daughter does, and it is something that I am now doing as an adult. And I am probably the least skilled member of my particular class. <laughs> and it has been wonderful to have that experience and to develop that growth mindset, to um, employ different strategies, to learn a tap dance step that's difficult, to um, to tolerate the frustration of failure. Uh, and so that's something that is kind of a lighthearted example for my students, but I share it with them thinking that, um, you know, that can help develop that connection. And maybe a student struggling with a math concept will remember my story of struggling to learn a tap step at the ripe old age of 51 and get a boost, even a humorous one from that memory. I think that's so tremendous. Uh, in my conversation with one of our students, we have a student, uh, we had one on for this season, uh, who's a dance teacher. She has taught. Yes, I saw for, that on, the, on your podcast list. Yeah. Yes, she has taught for many years and she herself is now a student again, but she has learned how to learn. And she believes that anyone who is going to teach should constantly be learning. And she she says, and I don't mean professional development. I mean, start with something you know nothing about, because when we have that beginner's experience yes. and that frustration and that confusion and that excitement of discovery. And the vulnerability is really a, a powerful experience to have. And um, it's something that I feel helps me connect to, to my students by sharing that. It's huge because, you know, when you, I, my father was a professor and uh, he had taught, you know, for decades and he would actually say to me, he said, you know, the, the tricky part is, is going back in with a new class and thinking, you know, I've been telling them these things for years. Why haven't they gotten it yet? You know? <laughs> and to remember that even though we are so familiar with it, they, they they've never heard it. It is completely right. new to them what we ourselves have to have to teach, even if they've had layers of it, you know, in other places, maybe high school or other institutions. It, when they come to us, it's new. Mm -hmm. And what I guess, you know, when you're sharing your own stories about the vagaries of learning, which are very funny and really frustrating and goofy and mm -hmm. fresh and exciting, um, you're you're doing so many things for them. You're saying, well, I'm I'm doing it with you. You know, we're yes. and, and also you're going to do this for a long time. And also you can do it like I do it. Because you're really modeling metacognition for them, aren't you? Yes, I think so. The um, you know, trying different strategies. If one doesn't work, trying something different and um and being willing to tolerate the um, the frustrations that can come with metacognition. What do you see about frustration and metacognition? That's interesting. I usually think of, of that in a different place. but So I think the for me, what I see sometimes the frustration with metacognition is the piece of if one strategy doesn't work as effectively for me as I had hoped it would, I've got to have the resilience and the resourcefulness to identify other strategies to try. I feel like there is so much surprise about learning in so many ways. And sometimes there's that wonderful surprise of being like, wow, this is amazing. I had no idea my mind is blown. And then, you know, I thought it was going to work differently. 
and it, it didn't work. Yes. I need to <laughs> and I'm offended. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm offended by this. Um, and in fact, I've heard you refer to this process as messy, but fruitful. <laughs> and, you know, I, I feel like we often think, we imagine that learning will be these clean stages, right? Like in writing, we think to ourselves, okay, I'm going to write a draft, which sounds so easy. And then I'm going to fix it. That sounds very clean. It, it's messy. What do you what do you what have you come to know about the mess messiness of learning? Well, um, you know, with metacognition, it's it's not a one size fits all concept, and students will have to try multiple possibilities to figure out what's going to work to enhance learning in different courses. So, things that we work on in COL include taking an initial action, evaluating your results implementing repair strategies when they're needed, and then taking a new course of action. All that requires grit to persist on this journey. I think it's human nature to want our problem solving to be neat and linear, but that's not the way that learning often works. Um, and so the developing the capacity to not only tolerate, but even embrace the mess of learning can lead to the growth of that deep processing and genuine engagement. A question maybe about human nature and, and a very large one. How do we help a student move from awareness to deep reflection to action? And I think that's the the key that we're looking for. And of course, I don't have a perfect answer on how we do that, but I do think it connects to our work with growth mindset, which is not just having a positive outlook. And it really can be a bold move for students to actually use strategies to foster that resilience, to try new things. And the vital part that we continue to try to um, explore and develop is for students to transfer the skills that they practice in COL to other courses, not just in the semester they take their COL class, but throughout their academic careers. I've heard you use that word before, embolden. And that I mean, that really just points so much to courage. And I don't know that that's an obvious thing for people not in education. Why does it take courage? Why does someone have to feel bold to take action? I think because of the potential unknown. Um, you know, we don't know if a strategy is going to work. And if it doesn't work as well as we want, and that means we're going to maybe need to try something else or reach out to a resource that we've never connected with before, which can make us feel vulnerable. And so recognizing the that it can take a lot for a student to try something new is part of developing that support web. Right. To, to try again in a, a different way is actually quite daunting. Yes. As I mean, just to bring that back, it's it's actually quite messy, right? It, it's very yeah. rare that things are very clean, that there are clean edges and things are very, like when I talked to uh, Brad Kaufman at the Life Skills Center, he said, you know, you know, they come in and they say, I need to work on time management. I've been told to work on time management, which is of course, you know, quite true, but they're not sure what that means. And also once you uncover it, it's actually quite linked to things like childcare and yes. And, understanding what study even means. How can you manage your time if you don't know what you're going to do with it? So perhaps there's a bit of a willingness for us to say, you know, 
um, as I expect my students to generalize these skills, I am also generalizing these things and doing them deliberately with my family. And my, and that makes me want to think about like, okay, so you're teaching CUL and you're teaching English. How do you find that those courses are in dialogue? How, what's the conversation between your CUL courses and your English courses? Well, as we've been talking about, seeking help can feel like an overwhelmingly impossible step for some students in, in some situations. So that's something we proactively work on in my COL courses and in my English courses. Um, hearing about, for example, a positive tutoring experience from another student can be encouraging to others to try that opportunity, to take that chance, to take that risk, really, to uh, connect with the resource. And um, so that college engagement is something that I've pursue uh, in both COL and English courses. One of my favorite writers is Anne Lamont, and she talks about the idea of bird by bird in her excellent book on writing. She is supreme. I, I adore her. And this is a concept I find very valuable to consider with both my COL and my English students. Uh, in her book, Lamont describes a memory of a sibling being overwhelmed by a project which required reporting on many, many birds, and their parent advised um, the sibling to take it bird by bird. And that's a phrase I use even now for myself when I'm faced with a big project. So how does the practice of breaking down these overwhelming tasks um, and recognizing that a task that might not look overwhelming to me could very easily be so for a, a student or for a different person, student or not, into smaller, more manageable chunks. And how can we empower students then to build that growth mindset and foster metacognition, develop grit through being able to manage um, larger tasks in smaller chunks? I think it may seem deceptively simple, but it is an, a really powerful ability for our students to develop. It's so funny how some things that are simple are hard. Yes. Simple does not mean easy. Um, and I've, I've, you know, I've read Bird by Bird many times. I've taught with it and from it and clung to it. Uh, and that image of the little boy head in hands crying over this huge project yes. that he has delayed and it's got to be done tomorrow. Yes. And the parents have all them. been that little boy in and different ways. That's what ways, I'm saying. I mean, like, as adults, right? You yeah. know, we're here with our, I mean, we still have these huge things we got to do. And the parents saying, Bird by bird, bud. Mm -hmm. bird by bird. And, you know, um, uh, my husband and I were watching Ted Lasso the other day. And Ted Lasso is trying to figure out this, like, coaching dilemma. And he and his uh, part coaching partner say to each other, bird by bird. I have not seen that yet. Oh, my goodness. Yes. So oh, bird by bird awesome. it is, is everywhere. And just because it's simple doesn't mean that it's easy. And that's that's huge because we would like to make things easy for our children and for our students who are in our care in one way, right? You know, we are responsible to them, you know, to teach them and support them. And but I don't know that ease is something we can necessarily do. Right. I think it it's more of a how can I as an instructor, how can I as a parent scaffold these larger tasks so that they are approachable, that they become achievable for students? How can we break things down into 
uh, chunks that feel more manageable. And that's something we do very much in our English courses. Whenever we have a what we call a major writing assignment, um, there are groundwork assignments or short, short writing assignments, call them different things, but they're all part of the, the process to getting to the big thing. And so at the, I just yesterday was working with a virtual English class and introduced the next unit and said, okay, here's the big thing that we're going for, but that's not where we are yet. First, we're going to do these process pieces. Here's the first small chunk. And this is how it connects to the major assignment. Um, and this is why we need to do this reading and do this, this work to get to the next step. Um, I often think of something Eel Doctorow said about writing a novel. He said, you know, it's like driving a car at night. Uh -huh. you, you, know, you, you can't see beyond the headlights. You know, you have your headlights. You can only see that far and you can't see the whole trip, but you can make the whole trip that way. I love that. You know, you can make the whole trip just being able to see. But of course, you've got to have the map to begin with, though. Right? You have to know where you choose to go. And that makes me think about uh, our, our mission here at the college, which is simple and almost impossible, which is to educate the community. And I say that it's it sounds simple. But it's so complex because the community desires so many things. And so we teach so many things and we teach so many ways and we teach so many people. And so when you look at it as a whole, it is incredibly intricate and it's incredibly complex. And uh, it's, it's a very tall order. And the people that I talk to here at the college are incredibly committed to it. And yet at the same time, they also feel great um concern am i doing enough is this right is are we doing it a good way you know what i mean are we, are we are the community getting the things that they come to us for um are the people who teach for us getting what they need do we understand what we're doing together so i'm wondering um wouldn't you think about your teaching and and trying to you know fulfill your part of the college's mission in this case in the english department um i wonder do you feel interconnected to that larger sense of mission? What's your current feeling as you um, uh, as you do your bird, right, <laughs> <laughs> with this with this project? Well, I think it's something that is continuing to evolve. I think conversations that we have, like this one, um, are a really valuable piece of that. I, in many ways. I believe that our faculty already implement a wealth of essential strategies with their students, which might seem discipline specific, but connect to the skills that we work on in COL. And I think there could be tremendous value in opening up our conversations as faculty across the college to explore where we connect. And fostering uh, those opportunities for connection to me is a key with um, colleagues, with students, with leadership, um, for example, for a COL example is uh, I've got online students currently in COL 105 who are planning to meet at a School of English and Humanities event, the uh, Coffee House Open Mic event in April in person. And that's something that they've planned together through our discussion online. And I've been able to contribute to and encourage that because I have attended that event before and I plan to attend it in April, and I can tell them about that experience. Even something as simple as, oh, you'll get free coffee and the faculty will bring treats um, and I'll see you there. So 
that is a piece that I think helps with that connection, the, um, the personal investment. And one of the needs that we identified in the initial two years of COL 105 was how to foster that sense of identity and connection for students with the School of English and Humanities. So this past summer, I created a Wakelet, which is a collection of online resources called Learn About the School of English and Humanities. And through this collection, students can, they can watch videos about the school and its pathways. They can read and submit to the stylist publication of student work. They can check out clubs, other events, such as the student conference. They can explore archives of past English and Humanities events all in one place. And this tool started out as beneficial for our COL classes, but it's been useful for the School of English and Humanities in general. So I think, um, you know, anything that can help us connect with and understand the work that we're doing in our different um, birds, <laughs> as you said, with our different birds across the college is very helpful. It's so funny. I asked you about what you would do with your particular bird, but you and I both know that, um, you know, teaching English is a, a flock, um, you know, <laughs> that they're, that they're really birds within birds, you mm -hmm. know, um, and, and that makes me wonder, you know, English is, which is, which is the background you and I share is this unbelievably rich, ancient tradition. I mean, if people have been talking and writing and telling stories, that's us, right? Right. But, you know, we're just a bird. Our flock is one of another flock. And I wonder about your curiosity. Mm. Uh, you know, we, we created this season of the podcast and the podcast in general to sort of begin to satisfy that. What are you curious about here at the college? I know that my students don't do college in a vacuum. And what I mean by that is they are students in multiple schools across the college. And that's an important understanding for me to recognize as a, an instructor. And so developing the connection to the learning my students are doing in other areas can help build a necessary context for weaving that web of support. Um, how can I, as both a COL and an English professor, provide opportunities for my students to practice specific strategies that will help them succeed in other courses across the college? Um, I don't have all the answers to that, but I always welcome the shared wisdom and experience of my colleagues. Well, I wonder, um, I talked to Angela Griffin in psychology yes. about the value of connection, um, that for students to feel that they belong mm -hmm. and to understand that they they should be connected, that it's good to reach out. Um, and that, because that's, I think many of many students and, and also many people don't feel that it, it's okay to do that for a lot of reasons. Uh, but I'm wondering about the value that you find of connection in, in your context, in this larger sense, um, for our students, but also for those of us working at the college. Well, I think that any way that we can build community, we can extend a, a hand of welcome is vital because we all want to feel that we're comfortable, that we're safe, valued, and given opportunities to flourish in the college environment. Um, and I think that that connectedness, especially now, can take a variety of forms. I also think that with connection, it builds hope even in times of struggle. Another personal story that I like to share with my students involves my own father, who uh, was always a great inspiration to me. And I, I like to tell my students about him. 
he was the first member of his family to go to college. And he was told that he didn't have the ability to be successful in higher education. He was told this by a lot of people. And when he did make it to college, he needed to take developmental courses uh, early in his academic career. But he had grit and growth mindset unlike anyone I've ever known. He used resources. He solved problems. Ultimately, he earned a PhD from the University of Connecticut and had an illustrious career. He uh, he published, he became professor emeritus at University of South Carolina in early childhood education. Um, I miss him every day, but I'm so proud to connect with his story for my students. We invoke our own lives, right? You know, we were not teaching in a vacuum. Exactly. We, right. We have uh, older folk that we are attached to, to younger, to our, the, our massive horizontal network, right, of peers and friends and, and relations. Um, so... I would love to think a little bit about uh, interconnection for those of us who work here, mm-hmm. right? You know, the students come and go as as their need arises, but um, you know, we we have some of us are here for quite a long while. What do you find the value of a sense of belonging for us? Is we we spend so much time focusing on our students, which because that is our mandate. But I wonder what if what if we did the same thing for ourselves? Well, you know, I. I have said many times uh, that Midlands Tech is by far my favorite place I've ever worked. And I've I've taught a number of places through my career. Um, I've taught in high schools, middle schools, taught at NYU, taught at Winthrop. And really because of the sense of connection and care that I felt at Midlands Tech, even from my days as an adjunct early on, Um, Even through transitions, even through a pandemic, um, you know, even through personal and family health challenges, I have felt uh, very safe and valued as uh, a faculty member. And so realizing how that um, that sense of value has enabled me to do my work, that's something that I want to then share with my own students. Right. Right. When we are well and connected, it makes it even easier to usher them into Mm -hmm. that sort of state of being. And I've been hoping, um, you know, when we first began to sketch out the season, um, I wondered, you know, where would we arrive? Mm -hmm. And one of the places that I, I think that we're really getting to is something that I'm thinking of entangled learning. Yeah. And the word entangle, I think, you know, for some people has, you know, a negative connotation. You're entangled in fishing nets or, you know, bad relationships. <laughs> right. or That's not what I mean. And I was like, I better probably should, you know, clarify that. I meant entanglement like in a quantum sense or an ecological sense that when one thing is affected, other things necessarily move and respond very quickly. And I'm wondering... Um, That seems to me like something, if our students learning were entangled, if they were able to perceive that there are connections across classes Mm -hmm. and across a course, right? That, you know, topics within courses are actually incredibly interconnected because sometimes, you know, they do take them very, in a very modular way, right? Oh, we do unit one. Okay, we're done with unit one. I'm moving on to unit two and, you know, the hell with unit one. Um, (laughs) So... What if they began to perceive their learning 
as interconnected and, and entangled. What do you think that would, would bring for them? You know, when I, I think the word entangled, I always just immediately visualize a web. And I love that image because as you said, it can be interpreted as a web in which something could be caught in a, a negative connotation, but it could also be viewed as a more positive way as a web of support and connection. And that's something that I think for our students, if they can develop that understanding that what they are doing in one class does connect with another class. And that's a big part of what we try to do in COL um, very intentionally. Well, I wonder, you know, I, I led with entangled learning, but what if there were entangled teaching? Mm-hmm. What does oh, that open up for you? Well, I, I can say that through the process of the development and, and the continued development of the COL courses, I feel like my, my own teaching has become much more entangled because I've had opportunities to work directly with colleagues on developing um, content assignments, uh, working together on cr- trying to create the best COL course that we can. Uh, not only with Alice Davis, who's our, our wonderful leader of all the COL at the college, but within the school um, from the early days in 2020 when we were developing the courses through the FLC and uh, and to now where we continue to work on them. As you were talking, I was realizing that entanglement does imply risk. Mm-hmm. It does imply risk because it means that you are connected, you're caught, you are in a web. And that if one thing changes somewhere else, you will be affected. Yes. You will be asked to change. And that is a huge piece, I think, of finding and fostering success, not only for our students, but for ourselves. I have to be truly open to changing the way I teach a concept, to changing an assignment, to altering the way I view a particular module or whatever it may be. And that can, that takes risk because we don't know exactly what it's going to look like. Uh, But that's where the true learning can occur. Right. It becomes our learning as, as, as the ones teaching. And that is incredibly risky because all of us, I mean, we are teaching is individual. You can't do it without your personality. There's there's no objective teaching, right? You you teach from where you are. And that means that you've come up with ways you teach, right? And things that you like to do and things that work for you. What if, <laughs> right? What if what someone if there's another way? And- right, there is another way. And, but it's the same thing we're telling our students. You just said that a few minutes ago. Yep. What if it didn't work the way you thought it was going to work and there was a different way to do it? Would you try it? Mm -hmm. How on earth could we make this appealing? Because (laughs) I mean, like, especially seasoned teachers, right? You know, we we really, if we're in the game, we're trying our thing, we're doing it, we've discovered all these things. How could that be appealing, do you think? I think that being able to share the work that we're doing in a variety of ways can help develop that appeal in a a user-friendly, non-threatening way. Uh, One of the things that I've been talking about with Alice is how can we uh, share more of our COL course with 
faculty across the school who don't necessarily teach the course? Um, and how can we be in conversation with them about the connections they see uh, with the work that they're doing? And so that's something that we're currently uh, thinking about, talking about, looking at, at ideas for. Right. Conversation is so often the starting point. Mm -hmm. That's where it begins to happen and you begin to talk through these connections and then things become more possible. They become less risky. Exactly. Right. I mean, because even when you say to yourself, gosh, I don't know how it would work. Um, I had a great conversation with TJ Kimmel and uh, William Galston about failure. Oh, right. About failure in higher education. Not just fa I mean, failure itself, you know, is a thing. The failure in higher education that we don't want to see that. <laughs> right. I mean, and that was one of the, the outcomes of our conversation was failure is a part of learning. OK, but also, could you take it outside? <laughs> you know, we don't have a lot of very public conversations about what to do when we fail a test, when we fail a course, when we fail a program and it's over. And but does life end with a fail? No. Students fear this is it. This is the end. I fail. Uh, I cease to exist. <laughs> right. But they don't. And that you have to go on. And so one of the things we discovered in our conversation is, is when, you know, these men who have been teaching you know, for decades say to a, a new student, you know, I spectacularly failed out of undergraduate school and right behind them is their master's degree mm. or their PhD on the wall. And the student has this moment of time travel, right? To say, oh, oh, time is not what I thought it was. It doesn't end. There's more to mm -hmm. it. Do you think when we think about entangling teaching, that fear of failure, that we might share that kind of sense of like, you know, this could be a disaster. It's going to ruin everything forever. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and There's we don't no really, right, and, right, and because we don't have much, you know, practice for talking about failure uh, in higher ed. What kind of barrier do you think that might be for us? Well, you know, from the COL lens, I think it's, I got to put my money where my mouth is. If I'm going to talk about growth versus fixed mindset with my students, then I have to really, truly be willing to learn from feedback, to um, to try something and be really okay with it not working and let that help me learn um, something new. And, you know, actually, as you were talking about that with failure, I was thinking back to um, when I was hired at the college and one of the, um, the wonderful administrators who did one of my interviews had said, you know, this is a place where we want you to be able to try things. And if they don't work, that's OK. And I think that may have been the first time in my whole career that anyone had said that to me. And that was back in what? 2015, 2016. And certainly we've had a whole lot of change in the world since then. Um, and I think that the, the ever-changing nature of how we teach and learn really requires that willingness and openness to not just as a student, but as a, a teacher to allow for that vulnerability and risk. And that makes me think I spent time talking to Stan Frost in Mechatronics and Eileen Finns in theater. Yes. About play is that both of these disciplines 
are about play, that there has to be a, an element of play. Mm-hmm. Because Stan said, you know, I can tell them about, you know, these, I have to tell them about circuit boards and how all these things work. He said, but I never see the light bulb go on until we get on the machines and they get to play. Mm-hmm. I mean, what is the place of play in teaching? Is that okay? Does that diminish our rigor? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> is it wrong to play or is there a place for play in our teaching? Oh, I think there very much is. Um, and, and not only within classroom experiences, but within my own planning and my own development. Um, I, you know, we even use the phrase, well, I'm going to play around with this and then uh, have a colleague take a look at it and maybe we'll, you know, toss it back and forth. And that to me is a process of play. I love it that you said you would talk about it with a colleague because I feel like um, as you know, when we're children, we play all the time to learn, but as adults, you know, play is kind of, you know, I don't know, you know, that's, that's for kids, you know, and we might not want to, you know, people to watch us noodling around, right. You know, it's more private, but when we usher play into the discipline, right. Then suddenly it's okay to talk about, right. Things sort of open up. So maybe as we think about getting to entangled teaching, that um, we kind of revivify the idea of play in our work, which is the chance to try with less risk, right? You know, you do it in smaller ways. You don't hang everything. You can do things in small ways. You don't have to do And it doesn't have to be the perfect product right out of the gate. Right, right. And then to sort of close that loop, um, to continue to, to do what we ask our students to do, which is to reflect. Exactly. To say, well, what just happened? Did it do what I thought it was going to do? And, you know, if it didn't, is that okay? Mm-hmm. Have you ever had that moment where you try to do one thing and it doesn't do that, but it does something else that's really good? 100%. Um, earlier in my career, I taught English and drama at the high school level. and I was, I remember I was very young. I was in my early to mid twenties. It was my first job. And one of the areas where I really struggled was in scenic design. I was not so great with that. And I had worked with these students to, we were trying to sew a backdrop, long story short. And I had this idea that we were going to do it in these strips of fabric and it would be uniform and perfect and beautiful. And I can still picture it being in this um, backstage room with these high school students trying to cobble this thing together. And it looked horrible. And I'm standing there going, I have failed my students. We have spent all this money and all this time. And what are they going to think? And la, la, la. And one of the students said, what if we do this as a patchwork instead? because that's what it's kind of starting to look like. (laughs) And I was like, okay. You know, I mean, I had to completely abandon my teacher-led idea. And we went to town and it ended up being this amazing, quirky, vibrant set piece that I never could have imagined um, without the student's vision. And so that was a really big lesson to me. I mean, it's still so powerful to me decades and decades down the line in my career that sometimes um, 
you have to make room for the patchwork that you didn't see coming. Right. And that it's okay to change midstream. And just because it, if you're making something, isn't that Neil Gaiman's rules of three rules for writing, finish it, finish it, finish it. (laughs) Well, and the thing for me that I, I try to really have as my cornerstone, and this may seem like, well, of course you do it simple, but it can sometimes be challenging to to keep this as the focus. What is the student learning? How is what we're doing beneficial to my student? And both in that backstage room, um, as well as, you know, today when I comment on student drafts, I have to keep that as my focus. Um, You know, what, what am I doing that is helping a student to grow? I remember when I was learning to teach, that was one of the things that um, our little community of new teachers would ask each other, especially when like you felt it didn't go well. Did learning occur? Mm -hmm. If learning occurred, you've done your job and you know it'll be better next time because of what just happened. And my preconceived notions of what that learning should look like um, have to be flexible. And perhaps sometimes as we get more experience, we become less certain. Yes, 100% agree with that. And I think that that would be news to our students who, who seek certainty, yeah. right? Because in the early days, you need to have foundations. You need those certainties. I guess it's the difference between what physics and quantum physics. <laughs> <laughs> you have to have laws in order to break them. Um, well, I wonder, as, as you look ahead, um, uh, you know, you are here in the middle of your career. You have time ahead of you, um, but you you have seasoned is such a great word, right? You have been through many seasons. Of <laughs> yes, indeed. Right. Um, and and you have been enriched by them. But there's more. What as you look ahead, what are you hoping for for yourself, for the college, for, for our community? I think that what I hope to be entangled with at the college and in our community is this continued exploration of how can we provide effective and responsive teaching and learning experiences in an ever-changing world, as well as the renewed commitment to supporting each other in a vibrant environment in which all members are valued and may flourish. I think, you know, that um, to me, those are the pieces that I I hope to be involved with moving forward. I love that. And I think the word responsive to me is, is such a great one in this conversation. To have a response, someone must be listening. Mm -hmm. Right. You must begin by listening. And only when you've heard, can you say back? I, I thought about that with Tom McKenna in the first interview episode um, where we got to that moment of saying, you know, I'm reaching out to the students and some of them are reaching back. And that's what makes contact possible. Everyone has to reach out to each other. And that's when that responsiveness occurs. Um, Absolutely. So as we come to the end of my um, my list of questions, what else, is there anything else still on your mind about the entanglement of our learning, of our our quest to give our students essential skills along with our content? Um, I think 
for me, the, the area of curiosity that I'm currently fostering and working with involves what, whether it's tools, resources, technologies, um, what can we do to continue to enhance and grow and change the work that we're doing with COL in particular to create opportunities for students that are going to be the most navigable and applicable for them as possible. And that's something that I'm um, currently working with Alice on a refresh of our COL course. And I'm learning so much from her and from Bonnie Alger uh, about what is possible. And, you know, uh, building a escape room for COL 105 to uh, a virtual escape room that I never could have imagined that even a few years ago. So it's, um, it's exciting to consider what possibilities exist. I think that's such always a great question to ask is what what's possible? Or if you have an idea and you don't know how to make it happen, just say, well, what if we could? What would that do? What would that look like? How could how could we do it? A great place to be. Melissa, this has been a great conversation. I have enjoyed it so much and I I so appreciate the opportunity to be part of it. Well, I'm I'm just so so glad that you could um take the time to to think through this with me and um I really hope that we'll we'll stay connected and do some more work together because this is uh I I mean we're hoping that this will be an increasing you know here in the podcast and other places to have these kinds of conversations and to I I'm so happy with the way we ended up talking about entanglement so am I. And I, you know, I, I'm on board with anything we can work on together moving forward. I often think of Annie Dillard's belief that the way we spend our days is the way we spend our lives. We spend half our waking hours working. It's always worth asking, how do we want to spend our lives? Doing what kind of work in what kind of community? This podcast is a look into our teaching lives, our thinking, and the meaning we find at our work. It's by telling stories and asking each other what we do that we find and build the communities we seek. Melissa also reminded me that while we talked about play in the context of student learning, we can also see it in the context of the creation of learning that we can play with ideas and methods first just with each other, thinking through, iterating activities and structures, tossing them back and forth with colleagues as they slowly tumble and smooth into more polished forms worth playing with in classes. The creation of learning methods, environments, and practice has the same elements that learning itself does. We feel frustration as we try things as instructors. We decide at many points whether we dare to disturb set patterns when we know that we need to make changes. We fail sometimes when lessons don't work out or we don't see in time what would help a student. And yet, we go on. Our work is parallel with our students. We are not separate. And if we move in a community of connection, it should be easier to reach out, get some feedback, a fresh idea, a good laugh, a pep talk, an honest opinion, a listening ear. 
back to what I've made you. On the website is a tool you can use to further and deliberately embed and to make more visible the essential skills of learning to learn. And I'd love to talk to you about how you use it. Can I make it better? Reach out to me at H-O-U-L-E-C at midlandstech.edu if you'd like to explore these possibilities the tool suggests or to just tell me about your work. We are already entangled. Our successes are already implicated with each other's. But do we perceive it? And what if we move further toward true entanglement? so that as we grow and change teaching and learning in one part of the college, the teaching and learning in other parts would change and respond as well. I don't think this would happen with the elegance of a clock, but with the gorgeous and messy beauty of the progress of flower into fruit or of caterpillar into moth. When you open a cocoon, it's not neat parts assembling themselves in there, but instead fruitful goo. I've been to enough good working meetings to attest that sometimes things have to get gooey before they begin to refine into something useful. As Melissa said in our time together, it's messy, but fruitful. Friends, it's been a great season together. I hope it's opened up some new paths for thought and connection here at the college or wherever you are. The work of learning never ceases during our lives. The water wheels of learning are ever turning, sometimes dry and sometimes overflowing. We'll be back in the new academic year with another season of instructional ecology and more sustainable connections as we work our way ever further to the web of our community. I hope you eat a great deal of delicious summer produce in the next few months and that your most audacious germinating thoughts about your teaching and learning and working with students come to fruition. If I can lend you a hand or an ear, reach out. I'll be reaching back. Thanks for joining us.